Escape from Plan A. Me some slack because it's been I think over a year since I've actually done a pod with people in people. the same room and finally uh doing it with Millie. Hey, what's up, Millie? Hey. And Dan Chen. What's up, Dan? Hey, good to see you cheers. again. You cheers. don't have a drink, but I, I will. I got oh, water. You got water. You got water. I got but beer. Cheers. Uh yeah. So uh, welcome. This is Escape from Plan A. Your host Chris. A very special episode because our good friend Dan, whom. I think I saw in LA, what, 2018? I think it was fall 2018, was I it? I think so. We went to the KBBQ. Yeah, Parks, Par- that's a place in LA, right? Parks Barbecue or something. We You're saw DDK. I- yeah, yeah, we, we saw tables. Daniel. They came in the, in the corner. Um, uh, Jess was with us along with several of our other friends. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I saw believe- photos from this. That looked like <laughs> yeah, fun. Yeah, almost three years ago. But uh, Dan, uh, tell us why you're here in, in New York. Yeah, so I'm here uh, because uh, a film that I directed uh, played at Tribeca Film Festival. It had what? its premiere here last Saturday. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so it, it's called Accepted. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about it? Millie and I, we were watching it right before you came. Millie uh, came a bit early. Um, her mind, I guess, still a little in shooting mode. <laughs> Millie had this, has this great shoot she did. Oh, you can tell us about it uh, right after this. But yeah, so we, we were catching up on it because I didn't even realize it was available. But yeah, so what's Accepted all about? Right. So Accepted is a uh, coming-of-age documentary that follows four high school students through their senior year at a school called TM Landry, uh, which is a school run by a husband and wife in rural Louisiana. And this school kind of got a lot of national media attention because it had these viral videos of its graduates going to Harvard and Stanford and Yale and the entire student body around them erupts in celebration as they click on their college decisions and get in. And so uh, when I first heard about it, the story was brought to me by a producer, Jason Lee. And um, I kind of thought, what's it like being a student that's growing up in Louisiana, that's going to this very unconventional school that has an extremely high success rate? And what's it like to live with that kind of expectation? What are these students' dreams and hopes? And what are they going to go through over the course of a school year to try to get into kind of elite American society? And so we followed them over the course of a school year, and it did not go the way we thought it would. Uh, but a lot of, I guess, challenging yeah, Millie, questions were. Yeah, Millie, brought and I, up. as we were watching it, we were, because we, we, uh, we were also looking at the article, New York Times article that you linked, and we were looking at the timing, and we're like, okay, this article came out in November 2018. This is the class of 2019 at the start of the semester. So it must be like September 2018. It's like, Oh damn! Like the that article is is gonna drop soon. Yeah. So yeah, all that. But uh, before we get to that, I mean, you you're here for Tribeca. I'm sure you've done a ton of press conferences, everything. Um, we want to know more just about how you've been doing, Millie. How you've been doing before we get into specifics of the film. So, uh, yeah, both of your filmmakers. I, I'm a film enthusiast. Uh, so you know, what's it been like the the last year? Just uh, w- when did you shoot this? We shot this film uh, starting in. Early 2018. So this school actually goes year round. So there's no summer break. And so I think our first trip to the school was April 2018. Um, And so we shot this over a year and a half over the course of the school year and into like the beginning of the next academic school year. And so by the time uh, COVID hit in 2020, we were done shooting. Uh, We were in editing 
And so we were editing a lot over uh, the pandemic. So I know a lot of people who are on set and like their set jobs were kind of put on hold for a long time and they struggled through that. I was, I guess, fortunate in the sense that I was working a lot remotely. The editor would pass me edits and then I would look at them and send emails back. And then we kind of worked that way through 2020. Yeah. Good timing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It sounds like you kind of wrapped up shooting before the pandemic took off. Right. And then there were moments where we um, we were in the edit and we were kind of like, oh, it'd be great to like follow up with the students that we uh, filmed and then kind of ask them some questions that we did not ask them. Sometimes we would just talk off camera and they would tell us stuff and we'd be like, oh, wait, we never actually got that recorded. So then we would like call them on the phone and then ask them to record on their iPhones and they would just send the audio files to us. So a few times we would do interviews that way while we were in the edit, um, which I think is pretty useful, even not during a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Millie, you just wrapped up a shoot with our good friend M. Tumi, who was supposed to be here, but he was he was too exhausted. So, unfortunately, uh, just the three of us. But, uh, Millie, yeah, tell tell us more about what what happened. Um, what was it like, you know, being shooting again? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so we actually just wrapped yesterday. Uh, so I'm, you know, my mind is, you know, all kind of, still kind of all over the place as we, you know, uh coordinate you know equipment drop-offs and like you know like fully wrap from the film yeah. uh, but we shot for three days uh both in upstate new york in a place called hurley and then yesterday we shot here actually in my apartment uh which is always an interesting exercise I'm so to see that because i've been there a couple of times so it's gonna be like yeah i know that place <laughs> yeah no except that uh you know a production designer came and you know added a bunch of things and mo- we moved stuff around you know there's all the there were we used all these uh fancy lights so you wouldn't know it uh, but that's even when cooler, you see the pictures you know it's that place and you're gonna be whoa so this is what it looks like in the movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um but uh, M. Tume and I right met through Plan A, actually. Um, uh, the hub of everything important. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Uh, well, somehow or another, like I had started following M. Tume because through fil- because of f- stuff he was tweeting about film. But then mm. I also noticed that Plan A folks were t- uh, following him because of. Um, you know, stuff he tweets about, like social issues and race. Mm. Um, and then at one point, Teen had said. Uh, oh, I see that you follow him too, May too. We should all get together to have a beer mm. because you know back then it was possible to do that. So this was a few years ago, um, but then and two men and I started, you know, like we, we continued to be friends and started talking shop, of course. And um, I, I told him I would love to, you know, support him on any of his projects at any point at some point. Yeah. Um, so about two months ago, we agreed that I would help produce his uh, short film. Uh, so that's what we shot. Uh, the shoot was great. You know, we had a really, really good team and it was super fun. Uh, a little bit of a mad dash because that's how indie shoots are. <laughs> uh, but I'm super happy with, with all the work that we did. Uh, so really yeah, looking I, forward I to wait. seeing the cut and, you know, uh, seeing how it all comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Dan, uh, how have you been spending your time in New York uh, City? You said it's uh, quite different from L.A. Well, yeah, you walk out and stuff's happening versus L.A. You walk out and nothing's happening. <laughs> and, and Millie spent half of COVID in L.A. So she oh, no can way. attest to yeah, whatever differences that's there true. are as well. But see, th- there's an advantage during a pandemic. It's good. It's a good thing when you walk out and no one is around. Yes, of course. Because you need your space. Um, so I actually kind of miss that. Uh, the solitude. 
Yeah, and the quiet, you know. I mean, here, New York is now sort of back in full swing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of nice to see, but also kind of annoying in the way that it used to be before the pandemic. Yeah, um, for whatever oh, reason, yes, I started... The pa- it's not like the pandemic is, is over. We are like, we'll see, you know, <laughs> we're mid-pandemic, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I started lurking the, the NYC subreddit on Reddit just mm. for whatever reason. There was this funny video somebody cross-posted from another uh, subreddit. It was, it was actually in this in this neighborhood, the East Village. There were these uh, three young people. Oh, that's just my laundry. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's just a dryer, so I don't have to get it for a while. Um, so they were on the, the top floor of an apartment out on the fire escape. It was like 6 a.m. They were like dancing and like saying like hello world and everyone and some of the bottom floor was like shut the fuck up <laughs> they got into a big fight and uh, everybody was uh, siding with the person who said shut the fuck up They're like oh, uh-huh. the, you know these these fucking like uh, they, they probably thought they were like nyu students or something right, right. Um, i'm sure they were yeah, they, they look like like tiktok teens there that's what they look like so i thought that was funny but yeah uh, so new york is somewhat somewhat uh back i think yeah yeah, I mean, Tribeca did a bunch of outdoor screenings for their festival, um, which was interesting. And I honestly appreciated it both to get outside after like a long pandemic uh, of being indoors, but also just getting to see like the city's landscape. I mean, sometimes it's annoying because like a helicopter will fly over the screening and you can't hear for a second. Yeah, but shoot overall, it down, yeah. overall, <laughs> yeah. style, just shoot it down. <laughs> right. GTA um, style, yeah. So how how do how do these screenings work? Because uh, when Millie and I were were watching the beginning of yours, uh, there was like an introduction by Patricia Clarkson. I just looked her up. I think where <laughs> I remember her from was she was the mom in Easy A. You guys ever seen that movie with Emma no. Stone? No, I it's a terrible, not. terrible movie. Uh, but but, anyway. but I was quite pleased to see Patricia Clarkson. I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I I'm sure she's been in. Far she better introduces Dan that. and his film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So like normally that would probably be done live, right? At a theater, you would be there and everything. So how how did it work this time? So this time, uh, I'll just speak for our screening. So uh, for our screening, we played it at this place called Brooklyn Metro Tech. Okay. Um, they set up like a giant screen, kind of the same screen you would see at an outdoor concert. Um, like a pretty high DPI, pretty high, like bright screen with like giant speakers. The sound was great, actually. The sound cool. was super loud. And then um, all the chairs would be in pods of two and four separated by six feet. And so it's kind of, you kind of have this roped off section and you have pods of chairs facing the screen. And then our screening was really fortunate because we actually had like this church-like building uh, with stairs that were facing the screen so the overflow could then just sit on the stairs and, and watch the movie. And then someone from the festival gets up and says, hey, this is the movie. And then here's the director. Then I come up and say, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. This is our movie. Then the movie plays. And then afterwards, we had a Q&A. And we were really fortunate to be able to fly out the students that we filmed in the movie. Oh, and nice. so they got to come from, uh, I think some of them are from around here and some of them are in Louisiana. And uh, some of their first times on a plane was during this trip oh, wow. a lot of their first times in new york and so I, I you know i hope they had a good time i think a lot of them said it was a good time and so that feels good yeah i mean this, yeah. this is a good time i think it's kind of opening up it's not too hot yet yeah uh and everything but it's nice that you actually got to see the audience face to face as opposed to like i'm sure last year was like zoom if it happened at all did yeah. tribeca even happen last year i don't know i think they honestly didn't have it and mm-hmm. so this yeah. year they played a lot of the 2020 they, i think they played all of the 2020 mm-hmm. films with live screening so they made mm. sure to give all the previous series films time to play with a live audience too that's mm. cool and and i also think conversely that it's nice that 
Like, I mean, for the first time in my life, you know, I was able to watch part of Sundance, for example, mm, you know, yeah. because I've never like been accepted by Sundance or really or necessarily had an, or had an excuse to go there. Right. Um, right. So but, you know, I was able to catch a few of the films, uh, you know, back in January when when it was up. Um, so and also like I wouldn't have been available to or I may or may not have been available to see any of your screenings, depending on right. when they were since I was tied up. Uh, so I'm glad that I'm now able to rent it and watch it from home. Totally. I hope they keep it like live yeah. and and digital. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, film festivals need to be more accessible to audiences and filmmakers. Uh, there's no reason for the exclusiveness. You know, I don't see. I mean, they whatever. They make more money regardless. You know, what <laughs> right, I mean, whether right. they're whether they're screening it online or in person. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's Have a good thing. Have you seen a movie in theaters yet? Yes. Okay. What'd you see? Uh, Anthony Hopkins, The Father. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw yeah, The yeah, Father. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it, but... I saw it online, though. He won, yeah. he won the, the big prize for Solid. It. Solid. Solid movie. Mm-hmm. I liked yeah. it, too. It's <laughs> one of the only ones that I've seen recently that I thought was any good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Millie, what about you? Have you seen anything yet? No. No, I know. Hell no. <laughs> I feel kind of weird about being in theaters. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm all mixed up, you know, on our, on our shoot... Uh, we were shooting mostly outside, which was great, but I was wearing my mask outside, mm. which would make sense because, you know, I I have been wearing, we have been wearing masks outside, but then when we were inside, I would take my mask off, which was actually where it would be more important to yeah, wear it seems, a mask. Seems it was, it was incredibly confusing. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, we had like made a plan for COVID concerns, but yeah. even I, as like the producer of the film was confused. Yeah. Yeah. But right. So now things are, it's not what it was before, mm-hmm. you know? I'm outside. I take off the mask. Inside, put on the mask. I think. All right. Uh, so uh, Dan, let, let's get to talking more in depth about accepted. So this, you were saying that when you started, what did you think you were getting into? Were you thinking this was, uh, you know, a nice, inspiring story about like a uh, underdog school sending underdog students to like all the Ivy Leagues? Then, um, you know, it takes a big twist. Uh, so, yeah. So what got you into it in the first place? And then how did you react when when it did take that that turn? Yeah, uh, I think some of my like producing partners, they were kind of interested in like kind of the positive, hopeful aspect. I don't know if I like even see it that way. Obviously, it's like these kids are aiming high. They're aiming for like a dream that they're they're chasing. I guess a question I had in my mind going into it was like, what is the cost of success and what is the cost of like just being massively catapulted from one social sphere to another? And so whether or not there was like a big scandal in the middle of the school year, I just kind of wanted to unpack what it was like to be a kid who goes to a school that's entire goal was to be like, we're going to catapult you to a place like Princeton now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think because I related to that mentality, like I grew up in Kansas. um, Now I live in LA, I do film. And so there was this element I felt of growing up with a chip on my shoulder, feeling like I had to prove myself, feeling like, oh, it's not okay just to be average or all right like you got to be a singularly special slash driven person and so i'm just thinking about what's the kind of student that enrolls in a school like this and just what are they thinking right now and so i wanted to follow them really interesting relevant topic yeah yeah Um, yeah because like uh you know the have you seen operation varsity blues the, the netflix documentary i saw most of it i actually got my second dose of the vaccine that day so I, I started watching it and i just 
went into flu delirium. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but it was it was funny what I watched. Like I like that they took real transcripts. I think that's kind of the draw of the movie that it, even though actors are saying the lines, but like real people said these lines. Yeah, it lines. is a weird blend between like a traditional movie and a documentary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, as I was watching your documentary, I'm like, what's the difference between the the Landry guy and like Rick Singer? Because they're kind of the same person, right? Because they're, they're the whole thing is to use any means to get their students slash clients into these top schools and that's and then it's like mission accomplished right and then hmm. that is the end goal in and of itself um what, what were your feelings like when you saw like somebody like like the, the rich white dude yeah doing this and and the you know the the black man from the you know much more difficult hard scrabble place in louisiana yeah uh but they're like aspiring for the same thing yeah, so this is something we tackle in the movie. Um, it's like an interesting kind of parallel we we draw, and the and the students themselves draw. I guess the okay. So here are the similarities. It kind of feels like the whole college system is meant to be gamed in some regard. Yeah, definitely. Right, and so you could say that they're both Rick Singer and Mike Landry are playing the game with the chips that they've been dealt. I think the difference mainly lies in the methods, and so. Uh, with Rick Singer, it's like you pay me X money and then I have like direct connections to these people. Um, it just seems more straightforward and transactional versus I think Mike Landry, he says it, it was kind of like that. He says, like, I know people at the universities. They tell me this and I do it. Whether that's not, like that's true or not, I, there's this also this element of Mike Landry's playing with mostly kids of color from this rural Louisiana area. And he's kind of making their applications to kind of play into those narratives of uh, I, I know some of the students described some of the essays as like my dad was a drug addict and despite that I am now like one of the top math scholars in my state and the kid would be like my dad's not addicted to drugs but that helps any <laughs> admissions person right. who's looking at my thing go oh my god this kid is so special we must take a look at this kid because you're kind of playing into like a liberal sentimentality that the admissions person will have. But then I think, okay, here's like the big difference is what it means for the students. Because I think if you're a varsity blues scandal kid, your life I don't think will be changed that much whether you get into a special school, quote unquote, or not, versus I think for the kids at TM Landry who are growing up in rural Louisiana, Getting into one of these schools would actually make a material difference in your life and would actually give you access to networks you wouldn't otherwise have uh, versus, I think, Olivia Jade. Doesn't really matter. She she didn't even want to go. She didn't want to go. And I get it because she has a YouTube thing to do and she already has people paying her money. She's got better things to do (laughs) than to go to, uh, where did she get in? USC? USC, which, I mean, I went there and like, you really got to cheat to get in here. I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of like, uh, not to be snobby, but no, it's just, it's just kind of like, uh, I think it makes a big difference for the students. And that's, I think the main difference. Yeah. For the, for Rick Singer's clients, it was about the parents for these. I mean, I'm sure obviously it means a ton to the parents, to the, to the Landry kids, but also the kids, it means a ton to them. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, except for my feeling is that, and looking forward to watching the rest of the doc. Yeah. Uh, but just. Um, my heart breaks for them because it's not just en- it's not enough to simply get into Yale. Yeah. You know, you have to have the uh, there. There's a lot. You need a whole support system to be able to succeed at Yale. Right. 
Um, and I, I guess and again, great inflation is so rampant. Uh, I feel like mm. getting in is the hardest part, I think. And then they will try to help you at least grades wise. Uh, I think you're totally right in terms of they're gonna meet a lot, they're gonna encounter a lot of just like bullshit outside the classroom that will probably kind of piss them off. But I, I think unless unless they like take the really hard science classes, generally speaking, I think you know the the hardest part of, about these schools is getting in once you're in you're like in the club they'll they'll coddle you and, mm. and right i'm you. sure that's true for some kids i'm just thinking of the new york times article which seemed to suggest that there were kids who were struggling once mm. they got there was one student who struggled when she got to wesleyan i think it was yeah i think there right. was a few and mainly because i think tm landry did not have the resources to kind of have the comprehensive curriculum that other schools would have. And mm-hmm. so, for example, Mike Landry knows if I say this kid excels at, say, biology, uh, that's going to make them look really great. Never mind that the school doesn't have a <laughs> lab to study certain science subjects. So then if that kid gets into an Ivy League school and they have said, I'm great at this, and they even maybe even applied for that major, and the school was like, oh, great, we don't have a lot of kids from this area going for that major but they haven't been prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that led to some some problems too, where oh, it's yeah, kind yeah. of like, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, because uh, let's talk about the school uh, for a sec, because uh, in, in the documentary, it looks kind of like one big warehouse. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, With it doesn't look like- kids of all ages. Yeah, yeah. K and, through 12. And I, I think Landry himself kind of boasts that it's a very, they don't even have a set schedule. Yeah. Uh, so, so what exactly were they learning, teaching? Because there were teachers there, right? Um, yeah. What exactly was going on? So this is all prefaced with the fact that we were told by the students that the school would be different when we were not filming there. So everything I'm saying is mm. informed by this level of it was all kind of camera ready. And then when we weren't there, things might have been different. Okay, from okay. from when I was there, it seemed like there were classes, but class schedules could be remixed at any time given the priority of the week or certain teacher availability. Um, I know that I feel like the main things that the kids were being taught were math, English, and just general ACT prep um, so that they could excel at the test. Uh, there were also foreign languages being taught. I don't know like how strictly they were being graded. Uh, I think some of them might have been taught because of how impressive it may look that we're teaching all these foreign languages at the school. Um yeah, there's a part yeah. where they're doing these like chanting these mantras, and there's like English, German, Latin, Chinese, right? Um, I think a few other languages. So yeah, they, right. they seem to be big on that. Yeah, but again, like I, you know, we only saw what we saw. We only know what we know, and so it's all kind of like a black box, kind of as far as what we we got as much as we could with the students that we filmed with, and they told us what their experiences. But I, I can't even say I'm an expert on the school or know the ins and out of it yeah. and ins and outs of the school. Uh, it reminded me, uh, uh, Dan and Millie, I'm sure you know about these types of school because you're in the movie business. You know, those uh, schools for like child actors that I, I've read about them. They are like in warehouses and they're, they're really more just, I guess, comply with state laws about minors having to be in school. But really, they're, they're just there <laughs> until their next commercial shoot or whatever. Right. That, that's the sense I got because, you know, I, I heard those places are also like these big warehouses, probably empty movie lots or whatever so yeah it, it was just strange just, just seeing this type of uh non-traditional looking school totally i mean it also made me think back to my own childhood of you know growing up in new york and uh 
attending Asian cram schools. Mm. Um, you know, like the the flags that you show. Uh, oh, yeah, you, yeah. you have a scene where you know they're putting up in front of Landry. They're putting up these flags for these Ivy League schools. Now, um, so if you grew up in New York and you were Asian, it is highly li- or somewhat likely, at least, that you went to one of these schools here, like CCB. That's like I don't, you, hmm. so. Neither of you grew up here, so hmm. you know these mm-hmm. names will not ring a bell for you. But there was CCB and also Elite Academy. Hmm. Uh, both my sister and I went to these schools. You would go there on the weekend and you know uh, study for the SAT. But I mean, like in my case, you know, I, I was. Uh, not even in high school when my parents were sending me to these schools uh, because there were other exams that you could apply for, Mm. um, you know, even before high school. Uh, But, you know, yeah, like obviously there's this, um, there's a preoccupation with getting into the Ivy League that extends clearly beyond, you know, like race um, because people of all walks of life, you know, are interested in getting their kids into these schools. Um, But I think it's... uh, it's a mixed bag, you know? Yeah. Dan, you were talking about how your initial intent was to look at, even if the school were perfectly on the, on the like, straight and narrow, right. what is the cost? Like, what like wh- what exactly specifically do you mean by that? Like, did you see your kids, like, getting burnt out? Uh, in the beginning, one of the, like, I think, like, one of the main characters, she's, uh, she's like, a rising ju- uh, senior. So, mm. she's talking about how the class above her did so well, and mm. she feels this pressure to, pretty much the, the whole reputation of the school rests with the graduating class you know you're only as good as i guess the latest class so like you know did you see a lot of kids just being incredibly stressed out and things like that yeah we got i i kind of had this feeling going in like it's probably stressful going here uh regardless of whether there's like a national scandal or not um i don't know i just kind of thought about my own experience dealing with like the emotional element of striving and the emotional element of kind of batting above your your expectations. And so just for my own life, like kind of like this idea, um, like the movie Whiplash kind of explores it a little bit. It oh, yeah, does yeah. it in a very dramatized and kind of laser focused way that I think some people have a problem with. And some people are like, no, I love that movie because it explains how I feel. Um so I always knew that there was something there regardless of whether or not there was a scandal or not. It's like, what's it just like going through the emotional rigmarole of it? And like, what do you do to yourself um, when you place these expectations upon you? And the, the reality is I don't have an answer. Uh, I don't know if I can say for sure. Oh, no, it's not worth it at all. Just embrace yourself and, and don't worry about it. Because I do think there's a reason why we do these things. I think there's material benefits to it. I think we... We have something in ourselves we want to prove. I think there's no denying that as well. That there's many reasons why someone would want to aim high and and you know rise above expectations. And so that was what I was interested in exploring. Like, what are the different reasons? What are the different emotions you go through? Yeah, because this place I forget the name of the place exactly. What was it? A uh, point something. Uh, but. Anyway, uh, like Louisiana, uh, one of the poorest states, right, in, in, in the country, still has not recovered from Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys have ever read the book, uh, The Shock Doctrine, uh, Naomi Klein writes about how pretty much, you know, right after it happened, you had the entire like kind of like private education industry just swoop in and then just change all the laws to just uh, be vultures and it just gutted the public school system. So mm-hmm. 
I mean, for these kids, uh, yeah, it, they, they might like kill themselves. Uh, well, not, not literally, hopefully, but, mm. you know, when they're like 16, 17, 18. But if not for that, what are you going to do? Like stick in this like dying town in this mm-hmm. in this like, kind of like state that's being gutted by all sorts of greedy people. So and, and it's the same with, like, say, uh, working class Asian Americans. Right. Uh, people like to criticize uh, them for being great well, grubbers. Know, like, uh, yeah. It's like kind of like enjoy life. But that's such an <laughs> upper class mentality. Like, of right. course, you can afford to enjoy life if, uh, you know, you're like Olivia J. Janouli. <laughs> like, you already got you're already successful. You're really only going to college to party. Uh, in, right. in that case, like, yeah, who cares whether you go to uh, like UC Riverside or, or Stanford mixed doesn't make a ton of difference but yeah if you if this is your only real shot at going up and and these kids like um they said the tuition was something like 700 dollars a month where the average income in that neighborhood was like something like 30 grand mm-hmm. so million are talking like that's probably more than their their rent or mortgage whatever they have and and when you are like a little kid uh and your parents are spending that much money on you of course you're going to feel pressure because like it or not, yeah, getting into one of these schools, they will open doors. Like I, yeah. you know, for example, uh, you know, I, I went to law school at, at like a good law school and a top law firm, they don't even bother coming. If you're not like in the top 14, they don't even bother coming. So, mm. you know, if someone says, uh, just take, you know, get a full ride at like, like a, a, a <laughs> nice local school and get straight A's. Well, still like these big law firms, for example, that employ the, the vast majority of, of private sector lawyers, mm-hmm. they don't even come to your school. And I'm sure right. the undergrad level all the tech and, and banking and, and all the companies that can help these families rise uh, out of poverty. They're not mm. going to go to most schools. See, I right. think that's because you work in an industry where people are generally quite intelligent. In the industries I work in, the industries I work in, you know, I, I don't know. Not not many people who, who, who are in the Ivy League necessarily. No. Um, I work in advertising and I also work in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, it's pretty... We're there, but we're not, you know, there I, I isn't, think, isn't like a huge presence. But I think mm. if you graph it, it's probably rising quickly. Like, yeah, something like law and business has always been like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, uh, Dan, uh, do you get the sneaking suspicion that like the entire kind of like culture industry is also getting all caught up in this like, uh, well, what do they call it? Credentialism? Like for whatever reason, you need like a PhD in, in acting to, to get a job these days or... Whereas before, you could just be some... A PhD in acting? <laughs> Whereas before, you know, like, uh, you could you could just be uh, some some yokel, you hitch a ride from Oklahoma, and then uh, you try to, and you could be, like, the next movie star. I mean, that, that was kind of like the, the stereotype, right? Like, 50 yeah. years ago. That's not the impression I get. Okay, I, well, that's I, good. I don't yeah. see uh, academics being touted as far as who gets hired for what. Um, I definitely think personal networks, I definitely think family connections play a huge role and who gets what jobs in the industry. Um, but I don't think it's academic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if anything, like uh, I remember a friend of mine um, told me he would not tell people where we went to school because then they would be like, oh, really? Well, let's see what you can do then. You know, kind of lean back and cross their arms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it can actually kind of be a disadvantage, especially if you're, you know, if you're, if the, uh, oh, and I, when I was in grad school for film, I remember we had a professor who actually told us um, we were talking about putting together like an electronic, like a press kit for your film. Mm. And part of that press kit involves a bio. Right. And what he described as a refugee bio, 
So make sure that you have a narrative about yourself <laughs> that doesn't that paints yourself as you know a refugee of some sort. Uh, this is not. Yes, this is yes. clearly not a piece. You know, whatever. He was very yeah. old school. He didn't care about whether, yeah. uh, you know, an idea was politically correct. But the point is, like, you know, you have to have a narrative about yourself that um, paints you as someone who's uh, coming from a place of, you know, underrepresentation, no yep. matter how ridiculous it may be, yep. you know, because that's what that's what sells in right. film. I was actually talking about it uh, with my girlfriend who also works in the film industry. And I was kind of saying, like, a lot of Hollywood is built around the tastes of of let's say there are 50 companies with money. I'm just pulling that out of my butt. But like, let's just say there's 50 companies with money. There are 100 people who can decide whether a project gets money or not. And so you're not really playing to the country at large when you come up with a film idea and you try to get it made. You're really pitching to those 100 people. Exactly. And these 100 people tend to be educated. They tend to be liberal and they tend to want to try to like put up progressive work and say like I am helping the world because I am doing this and so what you're describing as the refugee bio quote unquote that's like you're pitching to those hundred liberal minded rich often white but sometimes not just like generally liberal people who want to put that stuff out there and then what you get sometimes is this really interesting clash of you know when you go on YouTube and YouTube has like a new like this is like this new like social thing that we've funded and we're speaking about this issue. And these videos tend to get hugely thumbed down by the YouTube audience. <laughs> Wait, are you talking about like, uh, you know, like stop Asian hate team videos, Black all, Lives Matter all videos, videos okay. especially when YouTube itself says like, hey, fuck your front page. We're going to put oh, up yeah, our yeah. front page. Um, and I'm not even saying anything bad about these videos themselves. But what I, what I think is interesting is it's you're seeing that, you know, hundred or so Hollywood well-meaning people come up against like the quote-unquote general audience just like I didn't ask for this why is this here I don't Mm -hmm. care about this give me back the thing I was watching and so when you talk about Hollywood you're really talking about like a a pretty small group of liberally minded people that you're playing to yes and it's all about corporate optics just like it is in other industries Um, and I'm not saying that it's even conscious because frequently mm-hmm. I think it isn't, um, yeah. you know, so it's not out of, it's not m- out of malicious intent. It's just that, uh, people have, it's a self-perpetuating, it's sort of a vicious cycle or circle, um, right. a vicious cycle because people, uh, get these ideas about what makes sense about Asians or black people or, mm-hmm. you know, Latino people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they want to see and so like once you have those ideas in your head um, the only ideas that feel right are the ones that perpetuate those ideas right or th- that you know are, are, right. are along the same exist on the same plane right um, which sucks for us because let's say you want to make a let's say you want to make a film about Asian people that doesn't involve eating right <laughs> good luck yeah exactly <laughs> Are... Where's the Where's the big banquet scene? You know, with your right, with right. the family, or just simply a movie that isn't about how different Asian people are, right? <laughs> and how they have trouble reconciling that difference. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is just my family, but one thing that always like mildly irritates me is, is the way people. Yeah, gee, 
you guys heard like oh in asia they, they don't say i love you they, they ask you have you eaten that might be specific to certain <laughs> cultures my family definitely is not like that mm-hmm. uh my parents for better or for worse will openly say i love you and mm-hmm. they, they don't make food this weird um a code language Proxy for, for all, the, all their like repressed feelings uh <laughs> in fact if anything I don't mean to boast. I'm probably a better cook than my mom now. <laughs> so it's like, is it, you know, she's not like some repressed uh, woman who's like never talked in her life and only expressed herself some food, whatever. But uh, Dan, you were you were talking a bit about how you know at places like Tribeca, especially nowadays, there'll be a lot of you know diversity initiatives, workshops, mm. and all that. You're telling mm. us a bit about it. Yeah, t- uh, tell us what you've seen, how you feel about it, and yeah, let's go from there. Yeah, uh, while I was at Tribeca, I saw a like uh, I, a showcase of like short films from BIPOC creators. I think it was sponsored by a company. And it just made me think a lot because the work that's done by these filmmakers is like really well, con- like really well made, and I think very thoughtfully put together. Um, but then part of me would always just kind of think like, you know, kind of what you're speaking to, Millie. It's like are these all kind of a spin on like the refugee narrative of like, we are others. And because we are others, we suffer in this society. Um, and we just long to kind of be regular folk, I guess. And the thing is like, I don't consider myself above it all. Like I know, I think I participate and, and play in the same structures that we're all kind of playing in. Right. But we then, all have to some extent, it's exactly just a matter of exactly. you know, wh- how, how consciously it's happening, you know? Yeah. So I find myself like emotionally reacting to the films themselves, but then like kind of meta reacting to the overall structure of how, if you're, I guess if you're a minority person, like how you frame your stories and who you're framing them for and who's giving you the money and what they want to see. And it just, it just kind of took me in a lot of places. I guess I kind of felt, um, I don't know. On the one hand, I feel like this is all necessary work. Like you're carving out space that people can then run in and they can carve out more space. And it's like a long and intense process that takes a lot of time. But then another part of me feels impatient and frustrated and just like, well, what if we can just say whatever the fuck we want to say right now? And Mm -hmm. then part of me is like, no, no, you got to do one thing at a time. Do this. Then that allows you to do this. And that allows another person to do this. And I go, okay, sure. But if I could wave a magic wand, uh, it would not be so. So I think both both of the things you're describing are true. You know that that you that um, they're both necessary. Mm. Um, you know, but but I like option A. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should make whatever you want. Right, right. However you can. Yeah, and that's why you know I'm I'm grateful to have a bit of an indie a background. I live in New York, you know, which is where indie film yeah. is, is a slightly bigger thing than in L.A. But yeah. although right now, I mean, there's, you know, so much cross-pollination, it's kind of hard to make generalizations. Um, it's just that Hollywood is in L.A. Yeah. Um, but, you know, indie film is a big thing here. And I, and I just think it's really important for us to remember, like, you know, we can, if there's something you want to make and it doesn't make sense to anyone else, just make it the in the way you can. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be about money or production value or other people loving it or caring you know it's uh, it then becomes more about your integrity as an artist yeah which i think is probably i mean at the end of the day that's what that's the most important thing that inspires me like you talking about that you kind of participating in that independency and following your own voice that inspires me because i think 
even when I'm following my own voice, there is this kind of like double consciousness of, okay, I want to do this, but also how would other people perceive this idea? And how can I make sure this idea works in the larger, uh, I guess, audience or whatever? So, yeah, of course. I, I, I mean, yeah. but also like that's part of film because like typically one big difference between making a film and, uh, I don't know. Writing a book or. Yeah, or uh, painting. <laughs> make, like I, I don't know, I don't know if, if if some of the problems that come with oh, film. Are you looking are at my, not, my red yeah, lady yeah, painting? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm looking right now. I got, the, I'm looking I got at, that for Craigslist for like twenty bucks. Oh, it's it's very nice. Yep. I like the colors. I like the composition. Um, but film is, I guess you can make a film and not show it anywhere. But it's sort of it's designed. The audience is built. You know, like yeah. you're supposed to screen film for an audience. It's yeah. part of how film works. Yeah. Um. So it, it is. It's basically impossible to to divorce you know yourself completely from what people will think when they watch the film mm-hmm. um but I, I i guess what you can do is have faith that whatever you make there will be people who, who get it right. it may not be people who run hollywood studios mm. but um you can you can you can believe that there will be people out there who will understand what you're and appreciate what you're trying to say Dan Millie, uh, I got questions for you. Um, what are you sick of seeing? What do you want to see more of? Especially uh, whether from like minority pe- mm. like creators, but if you want something more specific, Asian American ones. I think we talked about food. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I was, please I, no more. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I uh, you guys know I love food, love to cook. Yeah, amazing. There's yeah. nothing to do with like food itself. I just or even. Um, the idea of Asian people enjoying food. That's not the problem. Right. The problem is that showing people, showing showing Asians eating food is a film cliche. So it's not, you know, I mean... Yeah, yeah beyond yeah. film, it's like, especially if you go on social media, it's like the yeah. one thing everyone, uh, you know, I call them the food Asians. It's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. anything that actually matters uh, that could be kind of controversial, mm. you know, they shy away, they equivocate, they shuffle mm. their feet. But... Uh, some some white person, um, I don't know, put put the wrong accent or misspelled a, a spice in one of their dishes. Mm. Then the, the torches come out and everybody <laughs> acts like a badass. And because it's easy, it takes no real thought. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's what you're getting at, right? It, right. It's, it's at this point, it's the most accept. It, it's always been kind of the most acceptable part of our culture. So right. that's the only thing that we feel comfortable expressing strong opinions on. Right. I mean, I hate to. I prefer to speak in the positive, meaning yes. like I'd like to be able to say this is what I'd like to see versus this is what I don't yeah, want to yeah, see. Yeah. But I do have a long list of things that I think have become cliches. You <laughs> right. Know, Let's hear kinda, Well, okay. Food, family struggles, piety. you know, immigrant stuff. What? Like uh, piety or piety. Yeah, it's like, right. Like, I must right. make sure my parents are happy yep, because that yep, is my I duty. I must be an obedient daughter. As an blah, Asian person. Blah, blah. <laughs> Nobody fucking cares, you know? <laughs> That stuff is played. Um, <laughs> you know, school, like getting into Asians who go to Harvard, you know, like there, there are lots of like really talented artsy Asians, you know, but somehow uh, we don't really see that on screen much. <laughs> Wouldn't you say? Well, like I'm, I'm talking about people yeah. who are in the like in the visual arts, you know, like graphic designers, um, photographers and painters, you know, those people do not get screen time. Mm hmm. I think my main thing is is kind of like this idea of representation 
being a, a, a so political that people conceive of characters and stories about minorities uh, mainly through the lens of like, okay, how is this going to help us politically? Like if we show like a good Asian person or a hot Asian person, this will, this will help us in the, in like society or something. And I'm like, okay, I get that. I get that goal. And I get, you're going to use that tool to get to that goal. But then I, I feel like it sometimes comes at the expense of like a good story or an interesting character uh, that may not be perfect. And I guess my main thing that I want to see more of, and I, and I put myself in the same thing is like, I just want to see more interesting, bumpy, flawed characters oh, yeah, for sure. mm-hmm. um, because I, I think we've kind of overcompensated, right? A little bit where it's like, everyone's hot. If you're a minority, like you're, everyone's hot. Everyone is a great person. <laughs> I'm just or, like... Or, sounds boring. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're fake flawed. You're... Right, uh, right. It, it, it's such a classic like like fan fiction cliche where right. you you have the the Mary Sue or or the male equivalent the Gary Stu character where mm. they're, they're perfect basically but they they've got like one basic uh, insignificant flaw mm-hmm. like um mm-hmm. the it's it's like the the question when you're interview like you're you're interviewing for a job what, what is your flaw like I just care too much about working hard I'm such a perfectionist right. oh, I, I'm, I'm a perfectionist yeah that kind of stuff not real like. Uh, I, I'm a, a deranged murderer. Yeah, not, right, not like right, that kind of right, flaw, right. which would be so much more interesting. Yes, like like um, I, I've said this on the pod before. Sometimes, like Asian American movie, why don't we make a movie about the Virginia Tech shooter? That would right. be incredibly interesting. Yes. Um, I've never read his writings, but I, I've heard they're very illuminating. But obviously, Asian Americans are, are petrified to touch that. It's like, right. no, we got we got to take care of our our self esteem. We we got to heal, guys. And it's like, yeah, I get that to an extent, <laughs> but it's artistically so boring. <laughs> well, it's like a shadow side that like we're not necessarily exploring, and then I'm afraid that leads to more repression of those feelings. Of like, oh, I had that feeling again. Oh, gotta gotta bury it. <laughs> gotta gotta just work out and be hot. Like that's yeah. the answer. <laughs> and it's just like, but wait, but you might have a dark feeling, and and it might be worthwhile to explore it and question it rather than like try to push it away i don't know yeah um and and i also think like geopolitically it's a little tough because there's so much race racism against asians right based on our the u.s's relationship with china Mm -hmm. Mm. and so like i would i completely agree that that story you know about um the virginia tech shooter would be really interesting on screen he was korean right yeah he's not even chinese yeah i know i know but i mean you know Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. effectively speaking you know in the u.s nobody care nobody knows the difference or cares right so you know i I guess if i i'm just thinking i mean i don't know what do you think dan like you know about taking on a project like that I i feel like it would at least on the face of it demonize you know asian men in a way that i think could be I don't know. I'd have to think about how to do it, you know, in, in a way that ma- painted this character in a in a nuanced and complex way. And and then you would have to think, well, okay, uh, this would be the kind of film that you would want people to see. But who would fund this? Yeah, I think that's my biggest question because I think artistically, you can you can wrestle and grapple with it and and not glorify it. I think you can explore it. Um, I I really think it's just like yeah where do you get the money and it's probably not from any traditional source of funding do you know what i mean and i don't think anyone is gonna maybe fund that expecting to make a bunch of money back i think 
whoever's filming that is like, okay, this is an art project where we're going to get deep into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I, I just think you'd need a really good story and script to explore that. I think the, the, the dicier your material, just artistically, um, probably like the more like nuance and, and care you're going to have to put into doing something like that. I, I mean, I can just hear Asian Twitter now, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Millie, uh, going to your point about, you know, how will this make us look? I, I think one thing that is going to be liberating about COVID and, and you know, just the rising geopolitical situation is, um, well, it can't get any worse, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's true. It is what it, and I, I think and I, don't, is, I don't want it to be about what, you know, how will this make us look? It's, yeah, it, it's just it's that. it's so, I think, especially, it, like, you know, we're all more or less the same age. I think a lot of us grew up with the sense that if only people could see our humanity right right understood our side of the story they would they would learn and you know to a certain extent that is true yeah yeah um you know people feel more warmly about south korea than north korea obviously right right but uh it also has its limits and when if you do live in a reality where you know the biggest american competitor is going to be a yellow country just be like okay well that's the way it is i can't do anything personally to change that nothing i can write or shoot or paint or or you know sing mm-hmm. is going to suddenly melt away those inherent tensions that are existing in, in global history between any competing you know nations yeah be like in that case why don't i just try to if, if you're like an artist just try to be the best damn artist i can be and hopefully leave behind something mm-hmm. that is worthwhile that maybe if people don't even like in in when it's created 20 50 years people are gonna be like damn that that guy or gal was fucking yeah on it <laughs> yeah she was on to something <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah yeah I, I mean uh i i i don't think it matters what people think it's just that um and i say that artistically mm. it, it's just that it's very hard for me to like for me personally to to not like my fear okay like, like going back to the virginia tech thing you know, like, what if it stokes further racism? That's my only concern. Um, because mm. people are stupid. Like, mm-hmm. people who go to see films are morons. Mm. And no matter how well, you know, how carefully and, you know, painstakingly you try to you, you try to um, conceive a character, for example, there are certain people who are just going to take away the same thing that they came in with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. I guess that's my struggle. Mm-hmm. But are those people even watching that movie? Good question. Maybe not. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I wonder. I mean, like, yeah. I think that's what you're talking about is kind of why people who herald media representation and treat it a certain way treat it the way they do. I mean, I know with, with this movie accepted, like, there's this kind of, like, um, potential diciness in terms of, oh, do you want to make a story about a black man who has an incredibly flawed school and had incredibly flawed methods uh is do you think that helps or hurts the overall community or uh you know overall politically how someone can interpret that and i guess my hope is that uh well if we just show our flaws and all as as humans and also show that he's grappling within a flawed system. You know, we're yeah, not the, ultimately we're, yeah. the the biggest indictment, like in Operation Varsity Blues, is in the system itself. That right. is wanting to make itself feel good by all those made up stories. Um, you know, my my mom was like addicted to crack or whatever. Right. And 
valuing that uh, above all else because because in the end it's all about the the school's feelings oh look at us aren't we so great you know Mm -hmm. yeah the elite school's feelings oh we are great because we admitted this person i mean don't you feel like what was i gonna say don't you feel like if we take the media rep argument too far where like oh we must think about every portrayal of every single character that could be a minority or an underrepresented gender or identity that um that it honestly just then becomes propaganda like and it's so, oh no this guy isn't high enough this person isn't good enough and you can't show that kind of person and then you were talking about it, and it just is so fake when they do that yeah uh well, we did a recent pod on unverified accounts on on this movie Moxie that came out on Netflix. I mm. cannot get that movie out of my mind because it is such such a pure distillation of that mindset where you got to check off every like cause or identity group Box. that might register yeah. a complaint mm. uh, if they're not shown. And in the end, it brings so false mm. to the point where you, if you watch, like, say, like a '70s high school movie where everyone's racist or homophobic that those kids are probably way more sympathetic because those are actually real kids and Mm. everyone's kind of dumb at that age and uh, you can kind of see their humanity and how dumb they are Mm. whereas these very polished social media ready type of it's just all bullshit and it just makes a bad viewing yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, it makes me think of the movie kids oh yeah the early 90s one that's the um larry clark yeah I love that movie. <laughs> nice. Those, Those oh, kids are such was, uh, assholes like for every minute of the movie, but it's mm. at, at least it's honest. Mm. Was Rosario Dawson in that? Who? Rosario, yes. Yeah, she, mm. she became famous because of that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. And mm. Chloe Sevigny was in it too. Oh, mm. yeah, yeah. Some, some mm. big 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so here's another kind of like controversial issue I want to get your guys' take on. You know, there's like a lot of controversy over when you're casting for especially like minority or like disabled people. They're like, you got to get an actor of that specific ethnicity or if it's like a deaf character you gotta hire a deaf actor i mean what what's your take on that as like directors and and people involved in film it's really complicated i think as a rule i would not subscribe to a hard and fast rule i would say that every <laughs> I, you know what well i mean put. like my rule is there is no rules but knowing the world we live in any choice you make, you must be prepared to stand by. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like everyone dunked on ScarJo in Ghost in the Shell, but I think it was also an easy movie to dunk on <laughs> because it didn't seem like it had a lot of love or critical it was so appeal. Bad. I saw it. So it's easy to pile on. Kind of like what you're saying. Like when when it's easy to pile on, everyone's going to pile on. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if someone like gives a really great performance, um, you may still have you know, Twitter hate, and you may just have to deal with it, field it. But if you can stand by your decision and say, oh, no, I cast the right person. We thought about it for a long time. We looked in a lot of places. We heavily considered this decision. And then we ultimately chose to go with this person. Uh, I think you can make that decision. And then everything else after that is a dialogue that, you know, can be worth having. That's my thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I I would largely agree that I think it's I think it comes from a place where you want to protect characterizing, stereotyping, people yeah. like not respecting. Yeah. I uh, think, but it, it's also I think borders on an absolute ridiculousness where you you're. I mean, let, let's take uh, one of my favorite movies, Amadeus. F. Murray Abraham plays like an old man. Mm-hmm. Are you going to say, Love "Oh Amadeus. no, 
yeah, oh, oh, he's not actually a decrepit 80-year-old right, man. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, that's age discrimination. Like, come on now. That's just... <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I have nothing to add to what Dan said. <laughs> I think he's right. You know, it's about doing the work and not just being lazy. Like, why did they... Uh, why would you... I'm thinking of... Uh, what, what was that film with Emma Stone? Oh, uh, the Cameron Aloha, Crow maybe? film. Oh, Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, why... But you know um, why? Yeah, I do know why. <laughs> I do know why. And well, so I, think, I, I can't. Yeah. I, I I guess I can't call it laziness because they're probably thinking about who they can cast, and they go, "Okay, there's four solid actors we can cast, and then there's Emma Stone, who's Emma Stone, who will you know will draw people, bigger yeah. box office numbers, right? Okay, I mean, I wonder. I wonder what I. I don't actually remember if. if crow had you know what what his response was to the controversy um but i mean you can almost not even like who cares you know what his thinking was because (laughs) i I wouldn't i wouldn't expect you know a a great degree of thoughtfulness from that type of movie yeah so i i almost think of it as like you know as an audience these days you get to have a voice because you get to go on twitter and social media you get to speak your mind and if other people agree with you they they can um, on the other hand, I'm, I personally am not about to start demonizing or, or like castigating people for their choices. So for example, if I watch Cloud Atlas directed by the Wachowskis and I'm like, look, the whole Asian face thing they did where all the white actors like pulled their eyes back to look East Asian, like it's not my cup of tea. When I watch it, it's kind of cringy. Uh, and I, you know, they, it breaks immersion. It kind of feels really silly and like high school theater or whatever. That being said, I don't think the Wachowskis are intentionally being racist towards me, uh, nor do I think anyone who likes that movie is a bad person. <laughs> it's just kind of like I watch that and I'm like, it's not for me. Um, yeah. I, I think yeah. that's comes down to the, to the biggest problem. People are so willing to judge your character uh, based on the media you consume because that's right. all people can really discuss these days they, they maybe it's like a breakdown of, of actual human context so it's yeah. like the only way i can judge you is not actually by getting to know you but you know seeing through your tweets which <laughs> movies you like which actors you follow right. uh, because there's no way to get to know you otherwise or i know too many people uh mm-hmm. there's no way that you can possibly know like I, I don't know how many people you follow on twitter but let's say a, a thousand which mm-hmm. is not even that many probably but still in real life I don't know a thousand people in real life right. uh, and there's no way I could know, uh, know them. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll judge you by like, okay. Oh, you have that book that everyone tells me uh, I'm supposed to hate. You're a bad person. <laughs> it's like, that's so ridiculous. Um, right. And biggest thing is it, it prevents you from being curious about things. Cause a yes. lot of stuff that's bad is interesting. Not because you agree with it or even cause it's good, but you're just like, okay, this person thinks this way. Um, I just want to check it out. Like, you know, online and the most interesting places are often the, the most twisted places because mm. if I want good normal people, I'll just talk to you guys, you know? right, right, uh, or my friends <laughs> or my family. When when I want deranged, miserable people, that's where I'll go on the internet for and, and just check out what what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better to, that than the other way around, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That the yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah. You're right. That social media itself is you know its own weird game. Yeah, you know, with people who are it's it's just like with corporate Hollywood optics, right? Mm. It's like people are trying to put to put 
forth this uh, presentation of themselves um, in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was on this uh, place on the internet, and it it was written. It, it was about a bunch of women talking about books that men. If you see a man having the red flag, some of them were obvious, like all these kind of like red pill pickup artist types. One of them uh-huh. was meditations by marcus aurelius like, <laughs> what is it that's sure, a problematic book i'm sure it's because there's a certain type of guy who who is like i don't know gets into like some dumbed down version of stoicism and, and quotes like probably uh wrong quotes by uh marcus aurelius too much but it's just like come so now we're not allowed to read marcus aurelius that's that's ridiculous yeah, those are more like snarky more than anything, right? No, like, I think these are genuine. if you see exactly. David Foster Wallace on a bookshelf, yeah, I run. think that's kind of snarky. But I, I think the, these people were kind of because I I didn't see that on on this banned list, but yeah, you know, yeah, but you know what I'm talking about. But right? I, that, that sentiment. I I I always hesitate on how seriously to take these things. Like, um, I don't know. I feel like on some level we've turned social justice into like its own form of entertainment and engagement oh yeah it's uh, like hugely entertaining dunking on people whether, yeah, whether through the lens of social media <laughs> uh social justice i mean um i don't know so whenever i see stuff like that i'm like uh and also it's a very specific subculture like you're probably like dating certain people from a certain group and these are the books you're noticing i don't know it's just kind of like very specific and it's kind of jokey and uh i don't know i guess we're kind of just like a snipey culture right now mm-hmm. we like sniping at each other yeah i've been yep. doing a lot less twitter uh especially this summer like it's oh, so yeah. beautiful out a lot, a lot of things <laughs> to do a lot of people to meet you know why waste time on that i quit i quit twitter oh very good very it made good. me too mad but then i also didn't feel productive sometimes oh. you can use anger and be productive but uh it really was it's just true. stupid anger that was not helping me <laughs> Well, I, well, I guess well, I'm the only one of the three of us who's still on Twitter. <laughs> no, I'm still on Twitter too. I just said I, I just don't post much anymore. I, I don't consume much. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm still on it. <laughs> I, I don't post. Well, I've never posted much, um, but I do. I don't know. I learn a lot on Twitter. That's the problem. I see tweets like, and I'm like, when, hmm, especially I would have never thought of it, thought of this issue that way. Mm. More like real time events. If you want to know people's reactions, um, there's really no better place mm-hmm. yep but yeah i'm spending much less time on it uh dan what was making you so mad on twitter that made you quit it's really hard to pin it down to any one tweet <laughs> it's just yeah. knowing that after 30 minutes on twitter i'm mad maybe i feel murderous uh-huh. uh and and honestly it's just not helpful like does me feeling mad help the things that i care about and then i realized no and then i realized look i'm not that witty so I'm not about to like change people's <laughs> minds with my tweets. So then what am I doing on here? Like I'm I'm just I'm I'm, I'm a mark basically. Like I'm being triggered uh, but I'm not contributing to any of this. So why am I coming back and getting slapped in the face? So I chose to leave <laughs> voluntarily. I, I think we can yeah. all take someone like Chrissy Teigen as <laughs> as like a cautionary tale. I'm just uh, think of how great her life would be if she never had Twitter. It's just like yeah. you have a on the surface a perfect life but you're addicted to this damn thing uh anyway so i I think that's a that's a good lesson for us all stay away do you really think chrissy's life has changed now that she was now that she's been taken down on twitter or whatever she probably misses her fake twitter friends because she's no longer like the 
queen of, of center of attention blue, the blue on wave or whatever yeah she probably misses trump she probably wishes he won re-election <laughs> in some way because she'd still be much more relevant yeah yeah it obviously sets up all sorts of perverse incentives like that as well <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah so uh, yeah it, it, you should do what like dan and millie are doing go out and and create stuff instead of always <laughs> reacting uh criticizing in, a, in like no criticism is good but yeah just like snarky uh drive-by kind of criticism as opposed <laughs> to substantive uh you know multi-thousand page uh word writing as opposed to just like a tweet or two so yeah that's uh that's a good good thing to take forward um any movies you guys are looking forward to that coming out this year Oh, I, here's what I want to ask you. Oh, wh- yeah. What do you think of this whole like coming out of theaters and coming out on streaming thing? I know that some people are blaming that for going to you know kill the movie industry in the long run. What's your take on it? Uh, well, I remember when Christopher Nolan was super upset that Tenet, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I never even saw. I Did never you guys saw. see it? I have no interest I saw in it. seeing it. Yeah, I had fun. I'd be curious to know what you thought. <laughs> it was um, very confusing. <laughs> But I, not not you know, in a fun I, way. Like Inception you, was kind of confusing, but in a fun way. I heard this was just what the yeah, hell. It's funny. I kind of feel the opposite. I feel like Inception is, first of all, a highly successful movie. So whatever my comments are, they're just my comments. <laughs> I think Inception goes out of its way to make sure, like, do you know what's happening in the scene? Just in case you don't, we're going to explain it to you. Don't mm-hmm. worry. There's a lot of things going on, but we're, we're going to hold your hand the whole time. Um, and then Tenet was kind of like, Christopher Nolan says, I don't care. I'm just going to do weird shit. You can follow along if you like. I don't care about you. And I had fun watching that mm-hmm. because it kind of felt like he just kind of let go of all his uh, his anxiety and just did weird visual trickery. And I enjoyed it for that reason. Whereas Inception was like, I must make sure you understand this is important. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. Right. Um, well, film is not an explanatory medium. Right. A professor of mine said that once, and it did kind of stick with me. Right. The more explanation you have going on, the more exposition you have going on, right. it's probably, it's, it's, uh, that's probably bad. Right. <laughs> um, but when Tenet was being released over the pandemic, he was he was upset about it when it when it was streaming. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't actually know that much about it, but I, I think it has to do with um, essentially how people end up getting paid. Mm, yeah 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 because there are different you know there are levels of contracts um and you know theatrical is one thing so theatrical is when something goes to the theater um you know and i think the contracts for streaming are quite i don't know what the right word is but sort of they're not as nuanced so essentially you you make less money someone like him makes less money but not just him it's probably also his like the crew for example the there's actors. a lot of talk about unions. Right, that exactly. Unions yep, yep. in their crew member deals, they are supported by the profits from box office that if you go to a streamer, you may not get that same support. And so right. it's kind of cutting the unions Precisely. down. It's kind of cutting everyone's back end points, which is like the money you get if it makes more money at the box office uh, versus if you sell on Netflix. Well, Netflix says, here's your check. Now go away forever. We own <laughs> this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... It does affect people who work in the industry economically. And so in that sense, it's a negative. I right. think. Unless, yes, exactly. Unless these unions and agencies can kind of sign new deals with the major streamers and kind of figure out a new version of back end. Um, so I think that's what they're trying to do, but have failed to do thus far. Right. Um, and so that's probably what Nolan was getting at, except that his... I, 
I feel like his reaction was very um kind of I can see how it would leave a bad taste in people's mouths because here's this like highly successful, you know, mm. millionaire director, you know, <laughs> like uh complain is it, it came off as though he was complaining, right. which, you know, is is not a good look for someone like him. Um I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not super familiar with all the nuances, but, you know, whatever. Obviously, people need to be fairly compensated for their work. That makes sense. Uh, I don't know why it's possible for a company like Netflix to be so opaque in their operations. You know, um, I think to this day, they're not very they're not transparent at all about like, you know, what how many people have streamed a film or you know what it mean what what is included in their account like what if mm. someone starts watching something but doesn't finish it does that count as a view i heard I think it, it does. does isn't it something um, like four seconds some ridiculously short amount that counts as a view it's, or like a, a couple minutes or yeah. something yeah mm-hmm. i mean I, I think um like on one on a on an academic level this stuff is sort of interesting but i actually try not to care mm-hmm because to Dan's earlier point, like the more you think about the matter you get, like I, I, I like to be, I consider myself to be someone who wants to be aware of, mm-hmm. you know, what's happening in the bigger, in the industry and in the world. But on the other hand, if you're too mad to work as an artist, that's a problem. Yeah. And you're probably, and, and so you need to like consciously, and there's so much to be mad about. Yeah. You know, that... um unless you consciously push your focus away from that and into what you should be focusing on, which is creating, mm-hmm. um, you, you're screwed, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're letting, that's what the case of letting the bad guys win mm-hmm. um, because you're not doing the thing that makes you happy. Yeah. I think like what you're talking about resonates in the sense that I, I'm just, I'm cautious against being like a mark like when is the anger righteous anger that like burns sustainable fuel for you to go out there and go after the things you want and help the people you want to help and to what extent is that anger just making you mad and keeping you on social media which people are making money off of you and they're getting your attention and you're not really helping the people around you're not really helping yourself and that's kind of when I was like, okay, when is anger helpful and when is anger just a mm-hmm. distraction? It's not helping yeah, me or precisely. anyone else. Um, it's also, I, I find being on social media is very time consuming. Like I'm so old and old school that like when, if I'm tweeting something, I can't just whip it off. You you guys can just be like, <laughs> whatever, you know? Uh, not well, what do you mean whip it off? Like, like tweet it out. I feel, yeah, I feel... Uh, I don't. This is probably not even an age thing. It's just a self consciousness thing. If I'm tweeting something, I'm going to like think about exactly how to word it before well, you I, I before I hit post. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know what the because best... I don't want to be a mark. Like right, I don't want people right. being like, and I have been like, right. you know, I never tweet. And in the, I can think of a few instances of feeling traumatized by some random stranger's response to something I tweeted. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and how it like bugged me for two hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm too sensitive, too damn sensitive to, to tweet casually mm-hmm. and not care about what people say. Yes. The, the best description I've heard of Twitter came somewhat recently. Someone said, Twitter is LinkedIn, except you go there to lose jobs, not get them. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. You, it's just a liability. Yeah. That's not going to help it's, uh, As I said, right. uh, uh, name one celebrity who's come off as cooler for being on Twitter. I don't mean like someone who... 
like rose from even people who rise from like nothing to to somebody on twitter always comes to like bite them in the end right almost always and if you're already uh of someone of stature um never works out for you in fact the only person i think who's benefited from it and this is the perfect example is donald trump because he is like a disgusting creature and that's who is best served by this so if you're not it's only gonna it's only gonna embarrass you or or you know it's it's gonna backfire on you i think twitter is meant is is best for mean people and trump is a mean person for a certain political side but there's plenty of just saying how they act mean people on the left and like mean people get ahead on twitter and i think to your point millie i was just like i don't know if i am that good at being mean (laughs) and so yeah i'm just like if twitter is like the battle of helm's deep i'm just like you know orc number 57 (laughs) it's like i don't matter here i'm just gonna leave and live my life you know the first urukai who gets remember when the old man can't hold onto his bow yeah and he shoots the urukai in the throat you're that you're the first yeah well i saw i was like uh, i'm just gonna keep on being that guy unless i just walk out of this battle and live my life and and be happier elsewhere so Uh, what are you guys talking about battle of helm's deep Lord yeah. of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Oh, oh. In the second movie, there's like this big showdown. <laughs> got it, uh, got it. Yeah. Like, I'm just one of the orcs, and the only way to win is just to walk away. <laughs> I've seen this movie. I just yeah, have yeah. no recollection of the details. Yeah. So, thank you for that clarification. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your earlier question, Chris, about movie theaters, I, I think I just like movie theaters, and I like movies that play well in movie theaters. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's movie coming out. It's supposed to be coming out this year. Starring Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Um, What's his? Has he ever been in a movie before? I don't think so. And I think one of the Heim sisters is in it. He's done a lot of music videos with Heim, and he's filming it in the Valley. And the code name for the movie is Soggy Bottom. And I just can't wait for the movie to actually come out and be called Soggy Bottom because they're probably not going to change it. And I just think it's hilarious. Um, Um, Man, imagine being Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. That's got to be a tough place to be. Yeah. God. It's like being LeBron's son. <laughs> yeah, honestly. But I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm curious about Dune. Um, I'm always curious about giant budget book adaptations. I think I want to like make those someday if oh, the cool. industry is still there. You know, like, what, like, what, like, what like, would be your dream book to adapt? <sighs> so there's a few. Um, I was, and I, I'm gutted because a lot of them have been made slash are being made. Well, so if like, they suck, you just do it again. I remember when Ender's <laughs> Game came out and I was like, oh, that oh, sucked, this right? is not what it should be like. I'm sure the fans mean? would love it if you, if right? you remade that. I remember Ender's Game. Uh, honestly, the three-body problem, that that trilogy mm-hmm. is so mind-blowing, but it's already being made on Netflix right it now. So suck, I'm like, so. yeah, you know, we'll you see what that, we'll see how that world. goes. Um I actually remember uh, I heard about Frankly in Love. This is not a giant sci-fi book series. Oh, yeah, but yeah. when you talked about Frankly in Love on the podcast, I went out and read it. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do this if it's available. Um, but I think it's already set up at a production company. I don't know if it's like in hell or not as far as development goes. But I'm like, they're looking for someone. I would love to like get my hands on an Asian American coming of age story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Millie, you got any dream adaptations? Book-wise, that is. Um... I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, you put me on the spot. I can't think. Oh, sorry Adaptations about that. of a book. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think actually that uh, I have a friend who's a you know who's been making films for many years, and mm. I asked him at one point what his uh, habits were 
what his watching habits were in terms of like you know for example prepping for a project or whatever Hmm. and he said that um he's not or um coming up with ideas for projects and he said that he doesn't really watch films to to as inspiration for making films he Mm -hmm. reads books Mm. and that's that was actually really um that was an influential piece of advice for me. I think that it's very there. There's something about long form writing, and people who uh, write books and are able to articulate ideas, you know, in that way, in, verbally in that way. Um, that it, there's more complexity to mm. you know that sort of to that to the that kind of verbalization verbalization of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think does in a very weird way translate well into film. Um, but sometimes when you're like a film nerd, you kind of lose sight. You're trying, you're, uh, you're spending so much time trying to like watch, you know, film. Right. Um, that you forget about, you forget to read, even if you like to read in a past life. Um, so, I mean, in, in, in the past, I've thought about, you know, for example, like, uh, the beauty myth mm-hmm. um, is a book that is interesting to me. I'm kind of like, well, how would you adapt that into a novel? Hey, Na- Naomi Wolf has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Recently, I know, so I know. she's suddenly relevant again. Uh, yeah, people might be up for that. But I think that like the beauty myth is probably due for an update because of social media and you know the era of Instagram. Right, right. Um, so. Obviously, that would be an ambitious project to adapt, but I think it's you know it's, it's for me it's more about the ideas behind the book that would make for an interesting movie. Mm. Totally. Yeah. What's cool about what you're describing is like first of all, I think books just can pack more character and theme and story into their like I guess one one book stacked next to one movie. Uh, great movies obviously have like extend beyond their borders, but books just have so much stuff you can draw from and pull from and then what i like about what you said is i mean if you're watching a movie for inspiration there is this temptation to then just pull from that movie's style versus when you read a book the images come from your own brain and then i think there's this idea of you can just make more original stuff because it's it's springing forth from your mind rather than oh they put a dolly shot there oh it'd be so cool if we did that same dolly shot for our movie yep yeah been there (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i mean they're coming up with a um I think I was complaining to you, you Liza and Jess, about this, Chris. Uh, it's a series adaptation of the Kathy Park Hong book, oh, Minor Feelings. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so I'm a little... I I haven't finished the book, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an interesting read. So far, though, Um you know, not in love with a lot of the ideas and, you know, the thing. It, to me, it feels very mainstream in its own way. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, mean, it, I, I didn't think it was. I, I think if you're blown away by that, you probably weren't thinking too much about this stuff in the first place. Which right. you, That's probably the intended audience, but... Hmm. Right, you know. either because you're not Asian. Yeah, I think primarily or because you're not you Asian. Just, or, right. like most Asian Americans, you never thought about it that much because hmm. right. you didn't want to. Right. I mean, I, I lived in that bubble for a very long time. I spent mm-hmm. most of my life, you know, in that bubble. So mm-hmm. I fully empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I'll be curious to see. So I'm not I'm not saying I'm looking forward to it necessarily mm. to, to seeing the adaptation necessarily. It's going it's going to be a, a series. Mm. Like I an episodic so. series. Or uh, written by Greta Lee, mm. who is an actress who I really like. Um, but I, I can't say that I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, like, I'll be happy happy if it's good and annoyed if it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's sort of a, it's a complex problem, so I'm interested to see how they'll solve it. Yeah. Have you read the the chapter about her art school days? I think in the book? I suspect that's what's going to focus on. That and felt the most narrative to me. Yeah, yeah, and to be honest, I'm I'm really not interested in that story. Yeah. Um it, it seems that whenever we hear from like Asian American women, it seems to be that crowd again and again. So mm. I I feel like I I've, I've read this story before uh and we've seen it before so whatever have you seen it in like visual form though because i don't feel like i've seen this visual form necessarily probably not because there's so little but i right. think if you see probably like a, like an indie film from like the early 2000s it's probably this thing like hmm. i'm the bad asian i didn't really fit in with like my traditional family so i went to some like predominantly white school or or social group and i i feel outcast there even though i i really want to belong like okay we got it yeah i think i i think when i was reading that that particular chapter i think what i liked about it was actually that like i think it followed her and her two friends but i liked that they were like all flawed and i there i guess there was some commentary maybe like not fitting into like the white scene but it felt more like a, a like a relationship story between friends that were kind of drifting in and out of each other's lives. So I don't know that, that appealed to me, I guess it's like the idea that people, they, they were having their own story and they were not all perfect kind of like ready made to for representation characters. Obviously we'll see how it translates to like the screen and goes through like a TV development process. But um, I don't know, like you say like your favorite show or one of your favorite shows is girls. Right. And I just like the how thing. they're like all flawed and like, but that's the thing up. I don't think they're gonna go, but back. they could be. They, if, they I, could if they do, do but based on what I read in that story, I don't think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think whatever flaws will be, be like, oh, we're we're bad Asian daughters, which is ultimately <laughs> a humble brag. Like, look how cool we are. That's right. that's what I'm talking about. Like fake flaws. There was that uh that BBC show, right? Oh, uh, I remember that. Like, didn't Chinese last burn, long. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, 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 yeah, yeah that's that. when you describe that. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, that's that's a visual representation. That's a vibe I, I got. Right, right. Um, obviously, that was terrible. But and, there's a more but, somber mood, I think, to Kathy Park Hong's writing. Like, I don't necessarily see it being like, oh, like we're bad. Play, oh yeah, no, Q rock music. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, it's not. That it seems lame. more yeah. like HBO. <laughs> Is it HBO? It seems more of that that tone. Can't remember if it. Uh, yeah. I, if it were HBO, I would probably remember. <laughs> so I want to say it isn't. Mm. Hmm. But maybe HBO will pick it up. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I I'm, I'm generally feel the same way about most. Whenever I hear about an Asian American project, I'm like, ah, oh, I hope it's good. I hope right. it's not cringy. Yes, but yes. like, we'll see. You know, let's. I- and then you got to think like, well, you know, that's also like if we do anything, <laughs> people also look at us that way, you know. And that is like kind may of, we find ourselves in that situation? Right, I exactly. Guess. <laughs> yeah, soon we will. I have faith. Soon we will. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's a good place to wind it up. Uh, unless you guys have any closing thoughts. Oh, Dan, wh- when and where can we watch Accepted? So uh, I don't know when this podcast will go out, 
I feel like by the time it goes out, uh, the Tribeca screening dates will probably be over. I think our digital dates end on the 23rd. And the, tw- and, and the 20th of June is the last day to buy tickets, actually, which is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond Tribeca, I know we're out to a few other film festivals. And I also know that we're, we're out to potential buyers. Uh, buyers meaning people that would ultimately distribute the movie either to streaming or to theaters. And so our hope is that it ends up somewhere that you can watch on one of your regular viewing platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I'll keep you guys updated. All right, I think it that. will. I mean, based on what I've seen, it was uh, yeah, it looks extremely well shot. It. Compliments to you on that, and Cheers. well edited. Um, this is, you know, it's a big accomplishment. It's not easy. Thanks. Yeah. Also, like I, uh, Dan, I, I mean, this was years ago, but you know, Ella, your short film, mm. uh, very good. Oh, uh, I love Ella. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, we'll provide a link there. Uh, I mean, you've been on this pod before, and we we talked a bit about that there, but um, that was. I think three years ago now. So yeah. we have people might have forgotten. So we'll, we'll put it up again. But oh, no, cheers. Very, very good short film. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. All right. So listeners, thank you. This is our first and hopefully not last uh, in-group live person, whatever you want to call it, podcast in more than a year. Hopefully we'll, we'll start doing more of this. Uh, so happy that Dan and Millie could, could uh, break the, the cycle of all remote <laughs> recordings. So thank you for dropping in my apartment. I know it must be kind of getting hot now because we turned up the air conditioning for sound's sake. Uh, so let's uh, let, let's uh, end. Let's crank up the AC. <laughs> let's crank up the AC. All right, thanks thank for having you for, us. Thank you for thanks, listening. Chris. We'll be back next time. Peace.